The following message by Dr. Matt Thornton is part of a series through the life of Christ. Jesus Christ only lived 33 years on earth and died a few miles from where he was born. Yet his life and death changed the world. Has he changed you? Join us on this journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as we follow the Lord from his birth to his resurrection, preaching some of the most amazing events recorded in Scripture. This morning we're going to consider the death of Jesus Christ. If you picked up a bulletin, you see that we'll be in Matthew 27, Luke 23, and John 19. If you want to find John 19 first, that's where we'll read from first, but it will be a moment before we get there. There's going to be two major parts of this sermon. First, I want you to know what Jesus went through for you. So I will attempt to explain the physical brutality and the utter humiliation of a crucifixion in the ancient Roman Empire not for shock value or to be grotesque, but because I want you to understand the depths of Jesus's love for you. After that, we will examine the seven things that Jesus said as he hung on the cross. But we're gonna do so in light of our sermon series. These final sayings of Jesus, one way or another actually relate back to some of the different sermons that we've preached since Christmas, since we started this sermon series. And it should send your mind back to different things that we've learned. But before we get into those two things, we're going to begin by considering Genesis for just a moment. Because it's important that we understand why death exists in the first place. Why we all face it and why Jesus needed to die. The entire story of redemption begins in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When God created the first man and the first woman... Adam and Eve. And God had previously created other things. You can read Genesis chapter 1. He made plants and animals and, and birds and fish, but humanity was different. God did not use his voice to speak us to, into existence as he had previously done. But pun intended, he got his hands dirty. He formed Adam from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into him the breath of lives. So Adam was unlike anything else God created, even more so because Adam was made in God's image and in God's likeness, and you are too. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over this earth. He blessed them. He told them to fill the earth and to subdue it. He planted the Garden of Eden for them to live in, to provide for them, for them to, for them to tend and take care of. And he allowed them to eat any of the food of the garden, with the exception of one tree. The Bible tells us that tree was known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God was upfront and honest. He did not hide from Adam and Eve the consequences of their potential disobedience should they disobey him. If they ate the forbidden fruit, he told them they would die. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent tricked Eve into eating this forbidden fruit. Adam, on the other hand, took the fruit and ate it knowing full well it was rebellious to God. He knew exactly what he was doing. And when he bit that fruit, he died, just as God said. At that moment, he died spiritually. He no longer 
had the intimate relationship with God that he was created to enjoy because his sin separated him from a holy and righteous God. Adam would also die physically as part of sin's curse and sin's consequences. God told Adam in Genesis 3, 19, you are dust and to dust you shall return. So that's why death exists. It's because of sin. Specifically, Adam's sin. Paul wrote in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But that's not just talking about Adam, is it? Is Adam the only man who has ever died? Does every other human live forever? And we just think, poor Adam. Of course not. Death is the result of Adam's sin, but we all face death because like Adam, we're all sinners. Death is a worldwide consequence of sin. People are very different from one another. People have different hobbies, different clothes. There are different cultures. There are different geographical regions in this world. There are different time periods throughout history. But there's one thing we all have in common. We die. Paul wrote in Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. On the one hand, we are sinners by nature because we're all children of Adam. He was what you would call the head of the human race. If you want to trace your family tree back to the beginning, it'll end with Adam and Eve. Since we were all in Adam, so to speak, when he sinned, we were plunged into sin with him and we faced the same consequences. We have a sin nature. It's why you have to teach children to tell the truth, but you don't have to teach a child how to lie. They figure that out on their own. We're sinners by nature, and still on the other hand, we're sinners by choice too. I've never met a single person who claimed to be perfect and sinless. Never. We know better than that. We make mistakes. We do wrong things. We have impure thoughts. Sometimes we're so sinful that we do good things from bad motives. And the consequence of our sin is death, both spiritually and physically. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived faces the consequences of sin. Death is just a universal curse to all mankind. But what about Jesus? Say, Brother Matt, you just said that sin leads to death, but Jesus had no sin. And he died. That's true. Jesus Christ was the only man ever to live who should not have died because he was not a sinner. And yet his love for you is so complete that he took the consequence of your sin, he took the wages of your sin, and he took your place and paid the price for you by dying. Death is the curse that haunts sinful men, but Jesus, the only sinless man ever, took that upon himself and he died. I want you to just let that sink in for just a moment. The sinless son of God died.
the sinless son of God submitted to sin's consequences. And he did it for us. He did it on your behalf. Sometimes we say that his death was substitutionary, which means he took your place. Isaiah 53, 6 reads, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul wrote, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just as Adam's sin affected you, one man's action affected a whole lot. But Jesus' righteousness did the same. His one righteousness, his holiness can affect you positively. Paul wrote in Romans 5, 18 and 19, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So sin leads to death. And if we're ever to be forgiven of our sins and enjoy life, someone perfect had to die in our place. That's why Jesus died. Now that we hopefully understand that a bit, I want us to consider the manner in which God chose for his son to die. Men die in a lot of different ways, don't they? And men have invented many different methods of execution. But at the top of the list, as far as brutality and humiliation goes, is death by crucifixion. In the Roman Empire, normally a brutal scourging preceded a crucifixion. And a victim who was sentenced to the worst level of this beating was stripped and forced to his knees with his hands outstretched over his head tied to the top of a scourging post. And as he knelt, two Roman soldiers stood ready, each with a device in his hands to inflict blows upon the victim. And sometimes this whip they use is called a cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had at least three long leather strands at the end of it. And at the end of these strands were tied either weights or pieces of metal and bone. So when these soldiers swung the whip, the weights would pummel and punish the victim's back while the metal and bone would just seize their flesh and when they would pull back, it would just rip skin off. Two Roman soldiers I mentioned stood ready, each with his own whip, and they took turns striking the prisoner's shoulders until they were exhausted or until perhaps their commanding officer told them to stop and they were not known for their mercy. There was not a moment of relief that existed for the victim. The beating was so brutal that eyewitness accounts say that you could see the bones and entrails through their back. Some scourgings were so severe that the victim died from the scourging before even making it to their cross. In John 19, verse 1, Pilate ordered this beating to happen to Jesus. 
after which the soldiers mocked his kingship by crowning him with thorns, which just so happens to be another result of sin's curse. They mocked him by draping a purple robe upon his lacerated back. They took turns striking him. The physical pain that Jesus endured was extreme. But other men throughout history have faced that same pain level. There were other men who were beaten by the Roman Empire, other men who were crucified. But none of them faced the spiritual mockery and the humiliation that Jesus faced because he was and is the king of glory. And yet he allowed that to take place. Why submit to that brutality when he could have obviously stopped it in a nanosecond? If you were here last week, you remember that before he submitted to being arrested, he knocked hundreds of men down with just the identification of his person. With just his voice, he sent people to their knees. But this time he chose to show his strength a different way by quietly suffering for the sins of the world even though he had none of his own. There were undoubtedly cries of agony and shouts of pain, but Jesus never protested. As Isaiah described, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. After this beating, the victim, if he survived, would be led to the crucifixion site and hung on the cross. I want you to look at John 19, and let's read verse 16 through 22. John 19, verse 16, so he, that's Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest said, uh, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Somehow after everything that Jesus had already endured, he was able to carry his cross part of the way to the crucifixion site. Other gospels mention a man named Simon was compelled to carry the cross the rest of the way for Christ. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Our English word Calvary refers to the same place, but it just comes from a Latin word for this place. So Golgotha or Calvary is where Jesus was crucified. The Romans did not invent crucifixions but you might say they perfected them. 
Crucifixions were embarrassing and painful. And I want to read a quote from a Christian medical expert who gives a detailed and insightful look in just the physical process of a crucifixion. As a doctor wrote, the pain was absolutely unbearable. Once a person is hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and the diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. The suffering and agony of a crucifixion was beyond language. So much so that they actually invented a new word to describe it. Excruciating. Our word excruciating comes from a Latin word that literally means out of the cross. They literally formed a new word to describe its pain and agony. It was such a brutal and torturous execution that by the first century, Roman citizens could not be crucified unless the emperor himself okayed it. The Roman philosopher Cicero said it was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen, nay, not even near his thoughts or eyes or ears. Crucifixions were so abhorrent that in polite society, you would not talk about it. You would not even use the word cross because it was considered a cuss word. It would be like us talking about gas chambers and electric chairs and lethal injections at a formal dinner. That's inappropriate. Crucifixions were therefore reserved for slaves, for prisoners of war, and for the lowest class criminals and rebels. It was loathsome, degrading, and embarrassing, and that was the death God chose for his son to endure. One of the worst, if not the worst, things man has ever invented. So Paul wrote to the Philippians that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's one more detail that made crucifixions even worse and it's that they were public. The execution sites were near high-trafficked areas. John wrote in verse 20 here that the site was near the city, just outside the city gates of Jerusalem, near the city. And so for the Romans, that was a strategic thing. Crucifixions were not simply painful punishments, but they were warnings to the public. The Roman Empire used them as deterrence. Rome wanted people to see what happened to anyone who rebelled against the empire. This is why so many people passed by and saw Jesus crucified. 
Other gospel accounts record people jeering at Jesus and making fun of him and mocking him. And yet, because of the placard that Pilate fixed to the cross, labeling him the king of the Jews, Jesus' death became more of a sermon than it was a safeguard. One author wrote this, without realizing it, Pilate wrote a gospel tract when he prepared this title. Pilate's motivation was not noble. It was technically, officially, the crime Jesus was crucified for, for being king of the Jews. And it was also sort of just that final jab that Pilate could get at the Jewish religious leaders because they did not accept him as their king, which is why they asked him to change the, the placard. But God used this to proclaim who his son truly was. He was and is the king of the Jews. And so each person who passed Golgotha could read the truth about Jesus, and there is no telling how many people passed by and read that. So along with the pain and the agony was the embarrassment of hanging almost bare publicly and enduring the jeering and the mockery of people as they passed by. But that's what Jesus willingly faced for you. Knowing all of that that is going on, let's quickly look at the seven things Jesus said as he hung on the cross. Look at Luke chapter 23 for the first statement. Luke 23 verse 32 Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. It is easy for us to become furious at the Jewish religious leaders, at Pilate, uh, at the Roman soldiers for their mistreatment of Jesus and, and to be angry about that. You know, that's not fair. He didn't deserve this. But there is no such fury in the heart and in the mind of Jesus. In fact, in Jesus' heart and in his mind, there was nothing but love for those people and for everyone else. After being mocked and beaten and nailed to the cross, the first word out of Jesus' mouth was Father. It was a prayer, but not a prayer for himself. Not, Father, give me the strength to endure. Father, help me to endure this. But it was a prayer for the forgiveness of others. Remember back to Brother Connor's sermon covering the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Later in the same sermon, Jesus offered an example public prayer, which included this phrase, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was practicing exactly what he preached, praying for, loving, and forgiving those who hated him and persecuted him. 
He's the ultimate example of his teachings. And beautifully that day, at least one man did receive forgiveness. Let's keep reading in Luke 23. Look at verse 35 through 43. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If there were ever a scripture that shouts grace and faith over works, this is it. Because that man would die that day as a criminal. Never having the opportunity to prove that he changed. Never being, quote, good enough. And yet Jesus truthfully assured him that they would be together that day in paradise. That wicked sinner was saved because he trusted in Jesus. So do you know what happened in heaven that day? Remember from our sermon in Luke 15 that when lost things are found, there's joy. There was so much joy in heaven that day because that crucifixion victim trusted in Jesus. A lost sinner was found. If you'll turn back to John 19, Jesus' next statement was addressed to two people who had a much closer relationship to him in life, more so than this criminal. He speaks to John and his mother Mary. John 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mary's husband, Joseph the carpenter, has likely passed away, leaving Jesus with the responsibility and the task of caring for Mary since Jesus was the firstborn son of the family. But now he's about to die. What would happen to Mary? Jesus honored her, loved her, cared for her enough that even as he died, he set up what we might call a reverse adoption in which the disciple John would take Mary into his own home. With everything Jesus has endured, he still had the love of a son to care for his mother at the weakest moment of his life. He still honored Mary. This type of honor looks a little different than the submission that he showed as a 12-year-old when he went back home to Nazareth and he was submissive to Mary and Joseph, even though he was already amazing everyone at the temple in Jerusalem. 
but this was still honor. It's possible that Jesus was silent for about three hours after he said this, as there was this ominous and untimely darkness that covered the earth from noon to three. So after what probably seemed like an eternity, if you'll turn to Matthew 27, Jesus spoke once more. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. We'll stop there. There's a couple of different ideas that exist about what Jesus said here, and maybe we'll have more time Wednesday night Bible study. But for now, I'll just simply say that Jesus was not doubting the Father, nor was he questioning the Father's involvement. These words from the mouth of Jesus were quoted directly from Psalm 22. Jesus faced the most trying moment of his life by reflecting upon the word of God. Is that not the same thing he did some three years earlier when the Spirit led him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? And he responded to each one of those temptations by quoting scripture. In his final moments, Jesus is considering Psalm 22, which is actually a deliverance psalm. You can go back and read Psalm 18 this afternoon, and you'll see the first 18 verses are pretty gloomy. <laughs> they're, they're depressing. They're almost hopeless. But there is a turn in verse 19. And David, who wrote Psalm 22, said this, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. You who fear the Lord, praise him, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. This is a psalm of deliverance. And the people seem to understand that in some regard because they say, hold on, let's see if Elijah will come and save him, if he will come and deliver him. So Jesus' mind is on Psalm 22, which if you'll turn back to John 19. Thinking of Psalm 22 prompts Jesus' next statement. John 19 and verse 28, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. What scripture? Probably Psalm 22, verse 15, which states, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Jesus said this to fulfill scripture, but of course it was a true statement. Jesus was thirsty. 
It's now around 3 p.m., and the last time he had anything to eat or drink would have been late the night before with the apostles in the upper room. He has sweated as if it were drops of blood from the pressure. He has endured a beating, lost so much blood. He's exhausted and dehydrated. He's as thirsty as any man would have been, which reminds us that he was a man. All the way back to our first sermon, he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He identified with us, not only by taking on flesh, but we saw how he identified with us through John's baptism, through facing temptations. He was a man. And now he was thirsty. The very one who stood up at the Feast of Tabernacles and cried out the invitation, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He's now thirsty. He poured himself out for you. Look at John 29, John 19, 29. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. This is the next to last statement that Jesus uttered. It is finished. I want you to remember from one of Brother Doug's sermons that when Jesus began to teach about his death, it confused the disciples greatly. Peter even rebuked him, right? And Jesus replied to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We saw last week at the arrest that Peter is still not understanding and he tried to fight and protect Jesus. And Jesus rebuked him again and said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now he has drunk it. And it was finished. Please understand that this was not a cry of defeat. This is not the last desperate shout of a helpless martyr. It is not satisfaction in knowing that this is almost over with. This phrase, it is finished, comes from one word. And the word speaks about something that is completed. Not just finished in the sense of it's over or it's ended, but something that has been brought to completion, brought to perfection, brought to its intended goal. This was Jesus's triumphant shout of victory because he had accomplished everything the Father sent him to do. He drank the cup and not a drop was left. Nothing was left unfinished or still required. This word is so rich that in the first century, merchants would write this one word on receipts when someone paid in full the debt they owed. It is finished. You don't owe anything else. This is the same word that the high priest would say when he finished killing the final Passover lamb of the season. 
it is finished. That day, God's true Passover lamb who paid in full the debt of sin for the entire world triumphantly said, it is finished. And then he handed his life over to the Father. Look back at Luke 23. Let's read 44 through 46. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This last statement begin with the same word of his first statement, right? Father. Jesus the Son addressing God the Father. One more remembrance of that relationship. Sort of the reverse of what we saw at Jesus' baptism and the Mount of Transfiguration when the Father's voice boomed from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now the Son is saying to the Father, I commit my spirit to you. I entrust it to you. This phrase of Jesus comes from another Psalm. Psalm 31, 6 states, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And with his final breath, Jesus Christ, the sinless son, entrusted his spirit to his faithful heavenly father. And with that, he died. The only sinless man ever died. In just a moment, the members of North Bryant will observe the Lord's Supper and remember through that pictorial ordinance just once more how Jesus' body was broken, how his blood was shed. And if you're here and you've never repented of your sins and received forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus, please humble yourself this morning and trust him as your personal Savior. Don't just know what he did. Know that he did it for you and trust him. Because even though this happened nearly 2,000 years ago, it still matters. This phrase, it is finished, emphasizes the ongoing and the lasting effects of Jesus' work. It means that not only did he complete or finish what the Father sent him to do, but it also means that res the results, the effects, the consequences of his completed work are ongoing. It still matters, and it always will matter what Jesus Christ did. So there's still hope for sinners today, and there will be tomorrow. 
Because Jesus' work was so complete, so perfect, that the results will never fade. Its power will never diminish. Its saving ability will never decrease. Its perfection will never decline. And so even today, Adam's descendants who are sinners, who deserve death because of sin, if they will repent and trust in Christ, trust in his death as their own, they will be forgiven forever and given life forever because it is finished forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 